0: This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer today is brought to you by The Jesus Music, the new documentary from Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine, featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music. The Jesus Music, only in theaters. More information is available at thejesusmusic.movie. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God? Come what may. That the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome everybody. Great to have you with us again. I had to laugh recently when I was witnessing a children's sermon where the pastor asked a group of little kids what they wanted to be when they grew up. All of the little girls, I kid you not, said they wanted to be princesses, and a few of the little boys answered, and they said they wanted to be either a soldier or a fireman. And I thought to myself, it really doesn't matter how much we hear that boys and girls are only different because our culture forces gender stereotypes on them. The fact of the matter is boys and girls are different and God made them that way. And we know that. And this is especially important when we look at how little boys really are under siege in so many ways. It's why my next guest is urging parents and teachers and adults alike to let boys be boys. It's the name of the new ebook from Trail Life USA CEO Mark Hancock. And he's here with us now to share some Winning Strategies for Leaders of Boys. And Mark, it's great to have
1: you with us. How are you? I'm doing great, Janet. Thanks for having me on.
0: Well, you are so welcome. I'm glad you're addressing this, and I would imagine you're pretty much convinced, as am I, that God made boys and girls differently, and that's okay, and that's not something we're forcing on them. It's something God designed them to be.
1: Well, it feels somewhat politically incorrect in this culture, but it's a thoroughly defensible position that boys and girls are different. There's so many different sciences that point to that. And it used to, of course, be an accepted fact in our culture. And it's a it's a shame that we have to address it, but boys need some help, uh, and, and, and they, they, they need for us as adults to, to stand up and point out that boys and girls are different, and they need, uh, they need different uh, strategies and help to help them grow.
0: Oh, they sure do. What would you say about this seemingly declared war on boyhood that you've talked about the culture embracing? What are some of your concerns in that regard? What do you see in the culture right now that really is making things harder for little boys to grow up to be the men that God designed them to be?
1: Well, there's a number of things, and and they all seem to point towards uh, making it more difficult for boys to be successful. One is this uh, the cultural uh, talk right now around toxic masculinity, which seems to discount uh, manhood and discounts boys being, you know, raised into into good, strong men. Um, That certainly is a piece of it. And then also, you know, in the 90s, we started this great initiative to help girls in areas of science and technology and math because they had been falling behind. And we put that whole focus on developing girls and we designed our classrooms and our teaching styles and our textbooks and everything around teaching girls in order to help them catch up in that area. But we forgot that the girls, or we didn't pay attention to the fact that the girls were excelling in some uh, other areas in language and in, and, and in uh, interaction with other other kids and some uh, uh, so, social interaction skills. And the boys were lacking there. And so we didn't pay attention to those things for the boys who just focused on the girls. The girls have made great strides, but they've kind of left the boys in, in the dust. Girls are now leading in every academic category that there is. And, and boys are two times more likely to receive special education, three times more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD. You know, uh, women now outnumber men in colleges and at at the undergraduate level, more master's degrees going to women, more doctoral degrees going to women. Uh, We've just kind of left the boys a little bit in the dust.
0: Well, we have. And long term, that's bad for the girls, isn't it? We don't need boys to be falling behind. We need boys to be strong men when they grow up.
1: We really do, and, and again, that sounds like it's politically incorrect. But uh, but the way the way that God made men and women, the strengths that they have, we need to acknowledge those and accept the strengths that women have, and accept the, the strengths that men have. And, and encourage those strengths and build on those strengths um, rather than denying that uh, there that are differences.
0: Oh, for sure. When you mention toxic masculinity, I, I get a little bit irked when I hear that phrase because it's thrown around a lot. What do you think they're really talking about when they say toxic masculinity, as if there's something wrong with being masculine? And, and how does that have an effect on boys and on young men when they hear that being masculine is toxic?
1: Well, I mean, you can only imagine if you're being told that, and you're seeing that in your culture. And of course, we have years and years of the fathers being the buffoons on television. That's part of our culture, is uh, and, and it's, it's showing, it's rearing its ugly head now in boys. And so we're getting out of them exactly the behavior that that we expect uh, in a lot of cases. Now, of course, there's toxic men, and there are there are bad men. But, uh, you know, bad bad men uh, don't happen automatically. Bad men happen because we're not developing strong boys, strong, confident, uh, winning boys. And we've lost our focus on developing them into good, strong, masculine men. Rather than teaching them to honor women and to respect women, uh, the the, the, uh, current movement is that women are fine on their own. They're strong Mm -hmm. on their own. They don't need need, uh, your help. And it's just creating this dynamic that doesn't allow men to be uh, the strong uh, warrior type uh, leader in the household and leader in the... In a society that, uh, that I believe God designed them
0: to be. Right. Well, hopefully I can speak for all clear-thinking women and say, we need you. We need men. We need <laughs> boys. It's just a ridiculous thing on its face. We were made to compliment one another. Well, the strategy that you talk about at the outset in your book is to embrace the scientific evidence of physical and psychological differences between girls mm-hmm. and boys. What would be, you, you touched on that a little bit when you were talking about classrooms, for example, and how boys and Girls will act differently or have different needs in the classroom, but what about some of the physical differences between boys and girls that are important for us to focus on if we're going to solve the problem?
1: Well, I focus on these things because they're undeniable, and you just you can't argue about these things. They're just facts. Things like that boys have more rods than cones in their eyes. Now, that's that's a physical difference. So, what does that mean? It means that they can see distance and motion more clearly but shapes and colors are more challenging. That's why when you sit a boy down and tell him to color or, or to be careful in his handwriting or working close to his face with to draw or to write or, or copy things, it's less engaging for boys, while objects in motion that are at, at a distance can distract boys. Now, what does that look like? That looks like a boy who can't pay attention. Hmm. So that looks like a boy who needs an ADHD diagnosis when it's just simply a, a, his eyes operating differently. Girls can hear 10 times more ten is better than boys can. So a soft-spoken teacher might not be able to hold that boy's attention. So what does that look like? It looks like a boy who's not paying attention, and so he's going to be diagnosed with ADHD. You know, And we've heard for years that our brains are wired different. We understand we have a left brain and a right brain. Well, the truth is that's only true for males. Girls can process verbally on both sides of their brain. So in a classroom where there's one person standing up front talking to them, and they need to see that person, not be distracted by that person, be able to hear that person uh, clearly, but also process what's being said, and girls just have an advantage there. So that classroom is is built for girls to be able to, uh, you know, process on both sides of the brain, and boys are just having trouble keeping making those connections that girls are able to make uh, easily. So like in Trail F usa, we, we we give specific strategies and and certainly any kind of classroom where you're dealing with boys, things that you can do to help boys engage more clearly. And uh, one big thing is to separate boys from girls, put them in their own environment. We're seeing great success uh, in schools that are that are going to single gender schools. Incredible. Booker T. Washington High School in Memphis raised its graduation rate from 53 to 90.5% after they converted to boys only and girls only classroom. So once you have that set up, then you can change your strategy in that classroom. You can set the class up different, even just physically. Plenty of volume, plenty of movement, plenty of voice fluctuation, hand motions, engaging the boys visually, engaging them auditorily, letting them move so that more of their brain is active. The more of the brain that is active in, when they're learning, the more they're able to, to, to process and learn those things. So just those physical difference, just to acknowledge, that not even to go into any of the other things that may be psychological or people may argue as being a social construct, the rods cones in your eyes are not a social construct. That right. is a design of God. Right. The way that the brain works is not a social construct. The way that the, the ears process sound is not a social construct. That's the way that they're built, and they're just built different. Well, they really are. And what, like
0: you say in the book, rather than teaching concepts from a worksheet, for a boy, you could make a poster, make a drawing, use large floor demonstrations, those sorts of things. And that makes sense because the end result in the classroom is you're trying to reach both boys and girls and teach them effectively. And if you're using a methodology that is more geared toward girls, of course, it makes sense that you would inadvertently perhaps leave the boys behind. And I think some of those suggestions are really, really important. We're talking with Trail Life USA CEO Mark Hancock. His book is called Let Boys Be Boys. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer Today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Aria lives in the Middle East in a radical Muslim family. She accepted the invitation of a Christian friend to attend a weekly Bible study and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. She took her Bible study booklet home, hiding it in her room before her mother found it and gave it to her father. He severely beat young Aria and called the authorities to report her as an infidel. They took her to a remote cell where they assaulted her and the Christian friend before letting them go. These two women didn't grow bitter. They grew and together they've seen hundreds come to Christ in the Middle East where Christians are urged to support new believers. You suddenly
2: realize how critical it is for Christians not just to assume God will look after their brothers and sisters who have converted from Islam, but that they will be prepared to walk with them.
0: Help send God's Word to believers like Aria. One Bible is only $5, and a limited-time match will double your gift. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800 S W O R D, or there's a Bible League banner at Janetmefford.com. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with healthcare for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a non ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt that's libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt or call now 855-565-2561 that's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt you're listening to janet mefford today and now here's janet Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. Let boys be boys. How hard is it? I agree. And it's the name of a new ebook from Trail Life USA CEO, Mark Hancock, who is joining us to share some winning strategies for leaders of boys. We were talking a little bit before the break, Mark, about the differences, physical differences between boys and girls and how that plays out in the classroom. Now we have a really obnoxious, I think, thing that's come up in our culture. And you know what I'm going to talk about, and that is you have this whole push from the radical homosexual agenda, which says you have to be more and more gender neutral. And it's wrong to separate boys and girls because essentially we're not different. And then what do you do with transgender kids and this sort of thing? How does that complicate things when you're trying to get back to brass tacks and trying to get to the basics and help boys as God created them to be? And then you're faced with criticism. Well, you can't really separate boys and girls because then it's not gender neutral and you're reinforcing stereotypes. How do you get around that kind of stuff?
1: Well, when you start with the question that you're asking is is, is how, how do you make this happen? How do you how, how do you help boys without going against this thing? Uh, that that really exposes the real issue is that in society for some time now we've stopped paying attention to kids about what's really best for them. Yeah. When you look at uh, abortion that didn't help kids when you look at uh, uh divorce laws being made so so easy that that didn't help kids when you look at uh at, at the same sex marriage thing, that doesn't help kids and all these things we weren't we weren't paying attention to kids and so so it's difficult to answer that question because you're not going to be able to say these things without pushing up against this really strong social movement that is that that's so contrary to biology to science to Culturally, to what it is we understand, every engaged parent and and every experienced teacher knows that boys and girls are different. Right. We we just know that. I like to share the story of of boys and girls who are given uh, pads and pen and a and a candle and a book of matches and told to go out into the night and and write deeply about themselves about what is that they thought. Well, the girls went out and they did exactly that. They came back with pages of nice, beautifully written things on what it is that they thought about themselves and who they were. Well, boys threw their pads in a pile and lit them on fire and had a great bonfire. They really enjoyed them. Of course they did. you You know. yeah. Now we laugh about that and our response is what yours is. Of course they did. Now if you reverse the the genders in that story and you say, Boy, some girls went out in the woods and they were supposed to write this thing up and instead they started this bonfire and danced around it. You say, Wow, there's something wrong with those girls. We would know that there was something wrong with them. And that's intuitive. That's not a social construct. We know that there's that boys and boys and girls are different. And that just doesn't that just doesn't square up with us. With, with us. And so it, it's hard to answer your question saying, how are we going to uh, deal with a culture that's saying the opposite? Because they're just going to say it. But, but we have to know, we just have to know that we're right. Yeah. And yeah. like I said, any engaged parent knows if they've got a boy and a girl, and this—you know, you may say it's a generality. I'm, I don't think it's a generality, but I'm sure that there are some exceptions. There are some girls who like to do boy things, and there are some boys who like to do quote-unquote girl things. But for the most part, we know that boys and girls are different. So you, we we have to stay focused on that, on that understanding that God created them that way, and it's beautiful that he did you know, with the strengths that they have and the way they complement one another, and we just have to stay true to that. And that's why in Trail Off USA, we, we are boy-focused, we we reinforce that we are Christ-centered, and we are boy-focused. So if the, if that's what we begin at this contrary culture isn't going to be able to work that out of us, because we just hold those to be uh, truths that are just at our core. If if we stop being Christ-centered, there would be no need for us to exist, because there's other organizations out there that don't honor Christ. And if we stop saying we're just focused on boys, we wouldn't need to exist, because there's organizations out there, 108-year-old organizations that are suddenly saying they're going to accept girls as members. And and, and so there's no reason for us to exist. We are we're sold out on those on those concepts because we we think we think that boys need this type of thing. So. It's tough to answer your question because I don't know that we pay attention to that, to that contrary message. We just stay the course and we're seeing a lot of success because of it. Well,
0: that's really wise to do that. Another strategy that I want to talk about is something you emphasize, which is the need for boys to take risks and to compete. Mm-hmm. Again, we're in the era of participation trophies. This is not necessarily a good thing for boys, is it?
1: No, it hasn't been. It's. it's in fact, it's it's been a bad thing. It's had such a negative effect on the, on their development. You know, I I like to say that what it's done that everybody wins philosophy has created generations of unproductive narcissists. You know, they're, they're unproductive because we haven't expected anything from them. And they're narcissists because they haven't failed. And boys, just as they are automatically think better of themselves. (laughs) They think that they're able to do things that they, that they really can't do. And, uh, and and so their first encounter with the real world, once they get out of our school systems, which are, which are telling them that they can do anything, they get a trophy for just showing up, they get out in the real world, they are really slammed when they find out that somebody expects them to do something hmm. in exchange for a paycheck or do something in exchange for a grade or an award or something like that. And so they encounter them, that's why we have more men living at home than we've ever had since the census was begun in 1960, because these men, what they call the failure to launch syndrome, they get because they've been carried along and being given trophies and told that they were really okay. They encounter the real world and find out I can't keep a job. They're, they're just not letting me come in and give me a paycheck. I yeah. actually have to perform, and and they haven't had a chance to succeed and they haven't had a chance to fail, and it's. Produce these these kind of this kind of uh, grouping of, of un, unproductive men, which just feeds into the lie that that men aren't aren't worth much and they don't have much to offer. It's just like a. Self, self-fulfilling, uh, self-defeating cycle.
0: Well, it is. It's kind of funny. I was reading in, uh, a website recently. Everybody knows the phrase helicopter parents, and I was reading that there is this new phenomenon called lawnmower parents. And lawnmower parents, according to this article, are the parents who want to get every obstacle out of their kid's way so he can mm. succeed. And that kind of ties into what you're talking about, that kids need to fail, especially boys. They need to fail in small ways so they learn how to handle life, right? I mean, if you're taking all of your kid's obstacles out of the way so he never fails, this is exactly what you're going to get when that boy becomes a man. He will not know how to handle life in the way that he ought to when he gets to that stage.
1: Exactly, and that just feeds that mentality that they're they're owed something and that they should automatically get a paycheck and automatically get a car and a home and and what it is that they need just just by showing up. And, And of course, they're discovering in in huge numbers that that just just isn't true. And it's it's a challenge on the workplace and uh, to to figure out a way to motivate, um, particularly these young men uh, who who think that, who've been told their whole lives that they, they just get a trophy for showing up.
0: That's it. You talk about boys basically asking three questions when they have social interaction. They ask, who's with me? Who's in charge? What's our mission? Why is it important for adults to understand that, and how do we take those three questions in mind and take those into account when we are raising boys?
1: That's a great question. And where, where that comes from is really looking at, when you, when you look across our society and you say, who is really successful at engaging boys and, and keeping them involved and engaged and active and moving forward and focused on a goal? And you say, well, who's doing the best is gangs? Mm. games are, are really good at that and and so they answer these three questions really quickly. who's who's with me they identify real quickly quickly who's part of that group and you know, they have a uniform or some some way that they identify themselves through signs or whatever who's in charge it's real clear there's a hierarchy in that in, in that in that setup there that lets them know who it is at the charge boys love knowing who's in charge they love knowing the boundaries a boy who's in a classroom is going to test those boundaries you know, you have the, the, the situation with a substitute teacher and the challenges they can have in a, in a room full of boys. Well, the boys are just trying to figure out what's the new rule here? Who's, who's mm-hmm. the top dog, quote-unquote? Right. Who's in charge? And then the third thing, what's our mission? You know, if we don't set a clear mission for boys, and gangs are great at setting a clear mission. If we don't set a clear mission, they'll set one of their own. And it won't look like we intended. It will be something else. That just like I said, here, here, boys, here's a mission. Here's your pads and your pens and your paper. Go out and write this stuff. They'll figure out something else to do if they don't have somebody right with them who's, who's with them and who's in charge and clearly setting out what it is that they need to do. So boys are tremendously creative and can accomplish a lot in a little time. But if you can define for them who's with them, and we do that through trail life by setting, setting them up in patrols, uh, you know, where they're working together and they're in uniform and they have a patrol name and there's, there's a cohesiveness to who's in charge. There's a hierarchical structure in there and over them all is an adult somewhere. And what's our mission? We give them very clear missions to accomplish. And that gives boys such confidence in that area. When those three questions are answered for them, that is when they are at their best. They're not getting off track they're not they're not uh they're not making trouble they're not they're not doing something we didn't intend. for them to. They are focused and they can do so well. We see that uh, in gangs and we see that in our military, the amount that they can produce and, and, and the things that they can accomplish when these when these three questions are answered.
0: Well, that's really important. And, and finally, and I know we don't have a lot of time left, but your third strategy that you mentioned in your book is physical movement. The fact that you need mm-hmm. to get guys out there, they can't just sit quietly all the time and have uninterrupted eye contact. You have to get them outside, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, well, boys know that intuitively. If you sit a boy down on his desk, what do boys do if you tell them to sit still? They fidget. Yes. And so they they know intuitively that they just know this, that they've got to move. Because, you know, we, the research shows us they need an hour of, of moderate or vigorous uh, physical activity a day. Well, they're not getting that, particularly not in schools. And we've cut recess back farther and farther and farther. And even recess is so controlled that it that it doesn't really get them... Uh, the the aerobic activity that they need for their brains to be engaged. So, uh, in fact, our industrialized learning environments punish them for doing what they need to do to learn best, they need to move to learn best. So when we tell them to sit still and be quiet, they're not at their best for learning. <coughs> John Rainey, John Rady, who's an associate professor at psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, says movement activates all the brain cells kids are using to learn. It wakes up the brain, and we need to wake up the brains these, of these young men.
0: Absolutely. Well, let boys be boys is the name of the ebook. You can check out TrailLifeUSA.com. Mark Hancock with us. Mark, so good to have you here. Thank you very. much much.
1: Thank you, Janet. God bless
0: you. God bless you too. Thank you for being with us. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by The Jesus Music, the new documentary from Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine, featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music. The Jesus Music, only in theaters. More information is available at thejesusmusic.movie. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Meffer today. We all know the name Charles Darwin. But how much do you know about his contemporary, the biologist and naturalist, Alfred Russell Wallace? Wallace, in fact, was a co-discoverer with Darwin of the theory of natural selection. But how did he evolve from natural selection to natural theology? Well, we're going to learn more about it today from Michael Flannery. Michael is professor emeritus of UAB Libraries at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, as well as a fellow at the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture, and is out with a new book, Nature's Prophet, Alfred Russell Wallace, and his evolution from natural selection to natural theology. And Michael, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, you have noted that Wallace is a relatively obscure figure in the history of biology, and I would imagine a lot of people who are listening don't know much about him. Why study him? Who was he, and what was his real importance in history?
2: Well, Alfred Russell Wallace is a fascinating sort of Victorian figure, as you pointed out in your introduction, a contemporary of of Darwin's, but he uh and he also as you also pointed out co-discovered the theory of natural selection quite independently of Darwin. He uh I guess the first reason to remember him is that he sent a letter to Darwin laying out his theory of natural selection uh in 1858 and uh, this just shocked Darwin. He said, "Oh, I you know, I I, did, I didn't realize anybody was was working on on something like this this close to my own theory, <laughs> and he recognized quite que- uh, clearly at that point that he he couldn't delay any longer and would have to, you know, work to, quickly to put together his uh, complete theory of natural selection, which he did uh, uh, quite a few months later um, in in uh, at the end of 1859. Uh, through, of course, the origin of species. But Mm -hmm. what Wallace did was he prompted Wallace to go to a couple of his close confidants and colleagues, Charles Lyell and Joseph Hooker, to say, well, what should I do with this letter, you know? (laughs) and they got together and they said here's what we'll do we'll give Wallace credit we'll read his letter along with some of your material on natural selection at the next meeting of the Linnaean Society which was one of the most prestigious scientific societies in London at the time and so the theory of of Uh, natural selection, um, or evolution by means of of natural selection, was really officially unveiled on July 1st, uh, 1858. um, And then Wallace, of course, published The Origin of Species uh, at the end of 1859. So the first reason we remember Wallace is that he really uh, was a catalyst for Darwin to put the uh, modern view of evolution on the map.
1: That's right. the first
2: re- reason we remember him. The second reason we remember him, or at least should remember him, well, he did a- also had a vast array of scientific accomplishments. Um, he wrote a book on his travels in the Malay Archipelago and the uh, maritime uh, Southeast Asian islands, uh, which is widely regarded as one of the most uh, important Scientific travel narratives ever uh, to grace the English language. Uh, he published the geographical distribution of animals in 1876, putting biogeography on the map. And then um, I would say uh, the other reason to remember Wallace is he actually helped develop um, a theory of natural theology, or a a comprehensive natural theology, actually drawn from um, his own views on evolutionary processes.
0: Hmm. Well, th- that's really interesting. But, you know, going back to what you just said there about the fact that Wallace had sent this letter to Darwin and so forth, was there any substantial um, difference between the way that he saw natural selection and the way Darwin did, or were they really right in line with one another? And, and what was it that Wallace had discovered that led him... To believe in natural selection as he did, what what precipitated that?
2: Well, Wallace generally saw common descent in in, in his view. What he felt was animal forms evolving slowly over time, um, and that. Uh, he got this largely, in many ways, from the same sources as Darwin. That, not the least of which was Charles Lyell, who was the preeminent uh, geologist of his day, who talked about slow, gradual geological change. And so, if that's how sort of the Earth has evolved as a as a geological structure, uh, it was not too difficult for both Darwin and Wallace to see uh Life itself as being evolved from uh, a slow uh sort of uh, Lyellian processes um in that sense they were the same. they were both influenced by uh Malthusian uh economic theory, which was uh, based on population growth um and so they believed that that uh population growing um Uh, exponentially, uh, while food supplies uh, only growing arithmetically would lead to a certain amount of natural extinction, although Wallace's views on that would change dramatically. Um, Those are the commonalities. Uh, Having said that, there's some significant differences between Wallace's view of uh, evolution and and uh, darwin's it often gets missed in the literature and a good part of my book sort of burrows into some of those uh, differences not the least of which and i think the most important one if i had to single out one big difference i would say that if if you go to the first chapter of the origin of species um... darwin lays out his initial argument for the theory Um, by talking about variation uh, in domestication. In other words, he believed that what the domestic breeders could do in, let's say, farm animals, whether you're talking about uh, developing uh, strong horses or whether you're talking about developing fatter pigs or uh, more uh, egg laying hens, He says, well, look at what we've been able to do with our domestic breeding. Now, natural selection is just analogous to that. It works in the same way. Hmm. And if you can see what what we can do in a short period of time as domestic breeders, look what nature can do with natural selection. Hmm. Wallace never agreed with that argument. He always said that argument is fundamentally flawed. And the reason it's fundamentally flawed is that if natural selection is truly natural, it's blind. Yeah. it cannot know what its ultimate goal will be and so therefore, natural selection may occur, but uh it's actually he viewed natural selection as more the elimination of the unfit. he didn't see it as having a whole lot of creative capacity
0: ah interesting
2: um. Whereas Darwin did and and so if there's a big difference between these two he, he Wallace keeps trying to explain to Darwin that your domestic breeding analogy for natural selection just doesn't work. In fact, he says, if, if you take one of your domestic breeds, you know how they, especially in Darwin's, day, used to like to breed fancy pigeons and that sort of thing. Right. Pigeons that never would have occurred on their own, you know, with the fancy long feathers and so forth. <laughs> he said, first of all, these animals would never have occurred on their own. But if you turn them back into the wild... One of two things will happen. They'll either revert to their original type or they'll perish. Right. So what what kind of analogy is that? Darwin never got that. Oh. <laughs> Always a fundamental division between those two. And I think that division led to other differences, too.
0: Well, that is what's so fascinating. And I know that you say in your book, Wallace's theology might be called intelligent evolution. And I'm anxious to delve into that a little bit and learn more about nature's Prophet. It's the name of the book from Professor Michael Flannery. We're going to go to a break. We'll be right back on Janet Muffer today. Stay with us.
1: If you're looking for adventure, serving as a volunteer on the Mercy Ship is an adventure like no other. And you'll be serving on the largest non-governmental hospital ship in the world, providing free care to some of the world's poorest people. Whether it's performing a surgery, cleaning the deck, or transporting a patient to a recovery center, every day you'll be making a difference in the lives of struggling people. Begin your adventure today. Connect with us at MercyShips.org. It's an adventure of a lifetime. Hi, this is Kirk Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry
0: of Preborn to help moms choose life. Actor Kirk Cameron supports Preborn
1: my four oldest children were adopted, that is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child, and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my four adopted children, and the two natural-born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved Ministries like Preborn.
0: Help moms choose life with Preborn. Your gift of $28 provides an abortion-minded mother a potentially life-saving ultrasound. $140 could save five babies. You can give now at 855-601-BABY. That's 855-601-2229 or visit preborn.com.
1: From Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine comes a new documentary, The Jesus Music. Jesus Music found its way in my hometown and it changed my life.
2: I saw contemporary Christian music born Right
1: before my very eyes. I think music is the most powerful universal language in the world. Featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music, including Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, Toby Mack,
0: and Kirk Franklin. The Jesus Music now playing. More information is available at the Jesus Music God Movie. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. Welcome back to Janet Meffer. Today, well, we are learning a little bit about somebody who isn't as famous necessarily in your mind or my mind as Charles Darwin, but has a very big role to play when you go back into history and see that he was a co-discoverer of evolution, but wasn't quite like Darwin in every way. His name was Alfred Russell Wallace, and we're talking about the book Nature's Prophet, Alfred Russell Wallace and His Evolution from Natural Selection to Natural Theology with Michael Flannery, who is a fellow at the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. Michael, here's what I find so interesting, because he was basically embracing a form of intelligent design. That's what you're saying in the book, that that was what Wallace really did to be different from Darwin, along with other things, in fact. But how was it that he embraced a form of intelligent design? What did that look like for him?
2: Well, to put it simply, I, I call it actually intelligent evolution. And so, what, what's a, a quick and 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 simple definition of that? I would say intelligent evolution is directed, detectably designed, and purposeful common descent. Now, where do we see that in Wallace? Now, Wallace himself had his own sort of intellectual voyage, as it were. Um, from Natural Selection to Natural Theology. Um, but I, I think his his magnum opus in this regard, you know, Wallace lived a very long time. He, he was born in 1823 and died in 1913. So he lived a very long and productive life. So toward the end of his life, um, he began thinking more um, uh, deeply about these questions. And... Uh, uh, to give you just a quick trajectory of his sort of move toward natural theology, um, Wallace famously broke from Darwin in the April issue, 1869, of the Quarterly Review. And what he said was, you know, surely we can have natural selection, and surely we can have common descent, and we can have change through time, and all these things. But when we look at the special capacities of human beings, their love of art, their their ability to make and appreciate music, their artistic abilities, their mathematical abilities, their abstract thought, all those sort of special attributes that seem reserved to human beings. He says we cannot call upon the sort of naturalistic evolutionary processes to explain them. We need to call on what he called an overruling intelligence. Hmm. And when Darwin heard that, he was appalled. Wow. He he wrote back to Wallace and he said, EU, EU, I can't believe this is coming from you, <laughs> your miserable friend Darwin. Oh no. <laughs> and yeah. Darwin wanted nothing to do with that. Well you know, Wallace stuck to his guns. He he knew it was gonna upset Darwin and and Wallace was never one to uh to uh yield or kowtow to uh popular opinion and he never did. He had his own ideas and he stuck to them. Well he continues to develop these ideas and then he sort of developed, he develops these much more fully in chapter 15 of his book called Darwinism. And some of his chapter, some of his book titles, it can be a little confusing because it sounds like he's promoting Darwinian evolution when in fact he's not. But that's sort of a Wallace thing, which has to be intact in the book. But at any rate, in his book called Darwinism, on chapter 15, Darwinism applied to man, he lays out his sort of teleological order of or, or, or views about purpose in evolution more fully. Hmm. And even though he titles the chapter, Darwinism Applied to Man, he applies it to much more than uh, man when we're talking about this overruling intelligence. He said, you can't explain the origin of life you can't explain sentience or consciousness in animals, and you can't explain the special attributes of human beings by natural selection or by pure, uh, purely naturalistic evolutionary processes. He says what you have to look at is some type of um, higher purpose, sometime some type of mind or mind-like processes and that was that was published in 1889 by 1910 he wrote writes what i consider his magnum opus of natural theology and it's called the world of life and the subtitle is in my view a a, a virtual thesis statement for intelligent design the the subtitle is a manifestation of creative power, directive mind, and ultimate purpose. Hmm. And and this four hundred some page book lays out in detail his view of of how the natural world uh, gives evidence of that. And of course, that's a very undarwinian view. Yes. Uh, of <laughs> of evolution. And, and, and so I, I would say, you know, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to lay this this out so that people under, could understand that uh, there was even in the co discoverer of natural selection, someone who did not yield to what I view as the sort of the positivism or scientism and ism on on the end of science is never a good thing right Uh, that are so uh so part and parcel of, of Charles Darwin's theory.
0: Well, did that evolution, I'm using that word not in the Darwinian evolution sense, but it did his movement from natural selection and, and all the way through to natural theology, did that uh, make him lose or points with his fellow scientists in his day? In other words, did that cause any ostracism for him, not just with Darwin, but with others? Or what sort of effect did he experience from having you know oh, gone through there's that no question
2: it ostracized him there's no question that he paid a tremendous price um well how did he how did he play this pay this price well you have to understand that darwinian evolution in the purest sense was promoted by his so-called bulldog defender thomas henry huxley Thomas Henry Huxley put together between himself and some close friends what he called the X Club. (laughs) Now, the X Club was a dinner party that met once a month in in downtown London. And their sole purpose in doing so was to um, really promote Darwin's theory of evolution. (laughs) And... um, in so doing, part of their strategy was to really um, push uh, Darwin's theory, and anything that did not match um, fairly closely with Darwin's theory was was denigrated and, and pushed to the side. Um, now, I can tell you right now that Wallace did not get any dinner invitations to the X Club. <laughs>
0: sounds sounds like he wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> and,
2: um Huxley and Wallace would always have some profound disagreements. And he wound up having profound disagreements with some of the key members of the of the X Club, which were at their time, you know, a group of powerful individuals. Hmm. Um that in and of itself wouldn't have been sufficient. I mean, you know, Wallace would have suffered a little bit. He might have been marginalized a little bit, but but historically, what happened? How was it that this X Club had so much power? Well, it wasn't just that Thomas Henry Huxley put this group together to help promote and 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 push Darwinian evolution. It was that he also uh, was connected with a friend of his by called Norman Lockyer. And in 1869, he founded the preeminent science journal, Nature. Mm. Okay? Yes, yes. Now, Janet Brown, who is probably regarded as the leading biographer of of Charles Darwin, says of Nature, and, and these are her words, far more than any other science journal, Nature was conceived born and raised to serve polemical purpose. Wow. So what I'm suggesting here is that um, Huxley not only had a core group of promoters for Darwin's theory, but he had a wider mouthpiece through Lockyer's Nature Journal.
0: Well, and that's so interesting because you can draw some parallels between how scientists who diverge from Darwinian evolution today might experience similar situations to what Wallace did. Well, we've got a great book, Nature's Prophet, Professor Michael Flannery, who's been joining us. And it was a delight to have you here, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. All right. God bless. Thank you for being with us on Janet Meffer Today, and we'll see you next time. This hour of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you in part by the new documentary, The Jesus Music, from Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine. The Jesus Music, only in theaters, now playing. More information is available at thejesusmusic.movie.